There's no more appropriate prayer than that in light of what we're going to talk about this morning. Let them see you and me. Those of you who know me know that I like uh, planning and like sticking to my plan. And this was not what we had planned for this week. I had planned to move on through 1 Corinthians after our discussion last week of 1 Corinthians 5. But the uh, reaction of our folks who, who heard my teaching last week uh, was, uh, was so intense. And there was such a weightiness to the conversations that, uh, that I've had over these past, uh, these past several days that I just didn't feel like it was appropriate for us to move on. Uh, we needed to, to have some more time to think together, to talk together about what God's Word says on the subject that I raised last week. Now, if you weren't here last week and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. I don't have time to do it again. Uh, you're going to have to jump online and, and watch there. You'll pick it up as we go. But we need to, to wrestle with this a little more. I and mean, here's why. Of all the different responses that, uh, that I uh, heard in conversations, the, the one question that I heard from, from everybody, regardless of uh, where they were coming with on the subject of race relations in the church, the one question that, that everybody was asking, it's the same one I've been asking, which is, so what do we do now? And so I wanted us to, to think together about, so what do we do now? And to do it in the way that I've been, had, had the opportunity to do it several times over this past week, just sitting together over a cup of coffee and talking about, well, what do we, what do, we do from here going forward? Now, the, the good news for us is that in this particular case, uh, we don't even have to wonder so much about what the church ought to do when the church is confronted or begins to realize that there is a, an issue in the church that is in conflict with God's Word, but and also rejected in the culture around it. That was our big idea last week, that there is there's an issue inside the church that uh, is in conflict with God's Word and also rejected by the culture around us. Uh, now, in this particular case, uh, we actually have some, some very good guidance, because the we, we also have the, the rest of this story for what happened to this church in Corinth. Now, a lot of times when we read in God's Word, we're not sure what the response is, but that's not the case here, because the Apostle Paul, after writing a pretty stern uh, words to uh, the church in Corinth, would hear back from them. He would hear their response to his words, and it would precipitate him writing another letter. And so that's what I want you to hear today. I'm just going to read it. You'll see it on the screen here. But hear how it is that Paul wrote back to this church after they had been confronted with a pretty serious issue facing them. Here's what the Apostle Paul would write. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Even though I did regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. You know what I've heard from you, church, over this last week? I've heard a church grieving, grieving over the recognition of its history. And I've heard a church longing to clear its name, to change the record with respect to how it is viewed and known, to say without a doubt, we're different than that. And so it has brought me great joy to be your pastor over these past few days as I've listened to you respond and to say, yes, that is the right response. I want to talk some more, though, about what it looks like to grieve. What does it mean for us as a community to grieve over these past sins? And I'd love to do it from my notes, but I can't get my iPad to open up. Uh, so I'm going to put them away, and you're just going to have to hear from my heart, okay? <laughs> Technology's great when it works. How do we respond to these hard hearts? How do we, how do we grieve appropriately? Well, look, a lot of folks might say, why do we even need to, to grieve about this? Uh, let's, just, let's just move on. It's kind of uncomfortable to even talk about the subject of race relations in any context, but especially in the context of church. It's just uncomfortable. Well, I don't think that we can go there. I don't think we need to, to rush past a moment of grieving. Because, because frankly, the, the, God's Word is full of places that confront us that uh, confront us with the truth about ourselves and about our church and about our culture. And if, if all we ever see are the things that we like to see in God's Word, then the truth is we're probably not reading it. We're probably not paying attention to it. In fact, this week I, I had a pastor friend of mine call me. Uh, he had heard what I had taught on, and, and he asked me, he said, are you preaching through 1 Corinthians? And I said, well, yeah, I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians. It's what we do around here. We take sections of Scripture. And he said, you're crazy. D do you know what's in there? And I said, well, yeah. So let me just give you a heads up that if this subject doesn't make you uncomfortable, stick around. I'll find something that makes you uncomfortable because 1 Corinthians is full of uncomfortable stuff because Paul is, is applying this healing approach to say, no, we, we can't just be okay with sin in our midst. We have to grieve it. We have to respond to it. And it's going to be uncomfortable. God's Word is not safe, but it's good. And so what our commitment is to continue to listen to God's Word, even when it makes us uncomfortable, and maybe especially when it makes us uncomfortable. Now, something else that, that I've, I've heard, and, and frankly, I've thought, 
has been, hey, on this subject of, of race relations, we, um, we don't just spend a whole lot of time on it. I mean, I, I, our, our church isn't racist. I'm not racist. I've, I've heard that, and I've felt that and, and thought that. But here's something that I'm learning as I am in conversation with African Americans and other minorities. What I'm learning is that, that the way that I was taught to define racism as a kid, and, and understand me, I'm a child, I grew up in the 80s when it was very important that children were taught not to be racist or talk racist or do racist things. This was a big deal for me in my education, both from my parents, from my school, every institution around me was, uh, was teaching me, don't be racist. And you know what they described as a racist attitude? They described animosity or hostility towards someone of another ethnicity. That was the definition of it. And so it's easy for me to think, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of any animosity or hostility to African Americans or Hispanics or Chinese or Vietnamese. I'm not aware of any of those things, so I must not be a racist. We just need to know that the, the conversation around race in our country is, has shifted. It's not the same conversation. It's not the same tension of the 50s and 60s where animosity and hostility was alive and well and right there in the front of things. By God's grace, we've moved forward. There's been great progress in our country and in our churches. I, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if I'd have preached what I did on last Sunday, I probably wouldn't have been here today. Your, your deacons would have escorted my family out of town. But that's not where we're at. We can have a conversation about this. But that doesn't mean that the issue is resolved. You see, the, the way to think about this racial tension, I, I think, it's helping me to think in this terms, is not so much about animosity or hostility. That's what a previous generation had to face, but I don't think that's the tension that we're going to have to face. I think what we have to face is the tension of superiority and inferiority. That goes much deeper. It's much more subtle than just animosity or hostility. You see, the, the call that we have as Christians coming under the gospel of Jesus is that there is only one person superior, and that's Jesus. And so, in our culture, we still see evidence of superiority, inferiority. And so when you listen to folks who are coming from another ethnicity, particularly if you are Anglo, you'll hear them talk about education, incarceration, leadership, economics. These are all just places where that tension of superiority and inferiority is alive and well. It just, it just is. It's still there. And that's why we hear, hey, there's still a problem. And, and it, it's not being a good neighbor to just ignore when your neighbor says, hey, I'm hurting. It's not being a good brother or sister in Christ to just dismiss it as, oh, that issue's been resolved. We have to move on. No. Love for our neighbor would call us to listen and begin to look for those tensions 
that other people are seeing that maybe you don't, maybe you don't feel, but that are alive and well nonetheless. Particularly given where our church has been in its long history, those kinds of tensions are, are still evident even if we don't feel them. I had a, an example of this even this week. An African-American lady came into our office and was talking to one of our staff members, and they invited her to come to church here, which is what we, what we want to do. We want to invite people to come to church here. And you know what she said? She, she asked the question, are, are there any black people that go to your church? And our staff member was happy to say, yes, absolutely. Do you know what her response was? She said, well, I didn't know black people could go to your church. Now, what that says to me, it's an anecdote. It's not, uh, there's not data behind it. But what it says to me is that outside of this building, there's an invisible force field that some folks feel. And maybe you don't. Praise God. I'm glad for that. But there's still a force field that some people feel. And it's our responsibility as we grieve that reality to say, Father, change that. Take that down. Remove any of those barriers. Even if it's not the attitude of our hearts to keep people out, there is still a responsibility that we have to own up to a time in history and place where that was the attitude. And this is a hard thought for a lot of us. We, we tend to think about responsibility as, a, as, as only an individual kind of reality. I'm only responsible for my sins. I'm only responsible for what I've done wrong. That's generally how we think about this subject. But that's not the way the Bible tackles this. I want you to see a little bit of this in the story of Josiah. He was a, a, a king in the history of Israel. Uh, Josiah was a young boy, eight years old, when he became king. And he came, came from a long line of fathers who had deliberately disobeyed God's, God's law. They had disregarded what God had to say. They had shoved aside the Bible uh, entirely, so much so that when Josiah became king and had uh, the temple, the place for worship, fixed up because uh, Josiah wanted to follow God, uh, they, they found a copy of the, the Law of Moses, the Torah, most likely, uh, the, the first five books of the Bible. And he had someone read it to him because he'd never heard it before. That's how, that's how far his, his fathers had, uh, had moved him and his people away from God. But Josiah's response is, is pretty interesting. You'll see it printed there in your notes. We'll put it on the screen as well. When the king, that's Josiah, when he heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Let's just pause. We don't tend to tear our clothes when we're upset or sad. That would come across as pretty awkward around here. I'm not asking you to tear your clothes uh, when I say we need to grieve over sin in the past. But what Josiah was doing was, was using the sign of his culture of deep grief. It was the sign of, of the loss of a loved one when someone close to you died. 
That's what they did. They would tear their clothes as a public demonstration of their personal grief. He tore his clothes. And then he issued a command. Here, listen to what he says. Go, ask Yahweh for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. And catch this. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us. Why? Because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. Josiah recognized that it wasn't his fault that the people had ignored God, that had disregarded his word and were uh, living however they wanted. He recognized that it wasn't his fault. But he also recognized that it was his responsibility. You see, what we have right there in that moment is a snapshot of a principle that we see in Scripture called corporate solidarity. That means that there are moments where when you identify yourself with a group of people, you take on the burden of that group of people. Now, this is contrary to the way that we tend to think about this in our culture. As, as Western individualists, regardless of color, we all are trained to think in individual terms. But the worldview of the Bible is to say, look, when you identify with a people, you are taking on the burden of that people. And so Josiah recognized he was taking on the burden of that sin. And we also grieve because we recognize that we take on the burden of sins of people who have long been gone. It's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. Now, this whole thing might seem like a bad idea, but, but let me tell you, this is really good news for us. It's really good news for us. You know why? Because the principle of corporate solidarity is at the heart of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The very hope that we have to have our sins cleansed and atoned for is based upon the premise that one man could identify with all and in so doing take on their burden and then do something about it. The cross of Jesus declares that one man has come and identified with all of us and taken on the burden of all of our sin and the sins of our fathers. And at the cross, his blood has atoned and cleansed them all. We want this principle of corporate solidarity. We need it because the, the effectiveness of Christ's work on the cross hinges on it. And so we have great hope, even when we recognize that there's a responsibility that we must do something about. And so of the many things that our church needs to do as we go forward. 
And there's lots of action steps that we can talk about, and we will talk about in the days ahead. For today, the primary action step is to respond like Josiah, to grieve the sin of our fathers and to run to the cross to find those sins cleansed. We're taking a look at our church's records to see if there's ever been a moment where our church has, has placed into its history to say, we repent and repudiate those sins of our fathers with respect to race. If it's not there, if it's not in our history, if there's never been a moment where this church has said, we recognize what happened in the past, and we know it was wrong, and we repent, and we say no more, then one of the action steps for us going forward is to do that as a church so that future generations that come around here, when they hear of our history, all of it, the good and the bad, they will also hear that in 2018, this church said, no more. That is not us anymore. And by God's grace, we're going to tear down that force field that surrounded this place. And we're going to say, come to all. Because when we come here, we come here not as white or black or brown or red. We come as sinners in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus. And so, we'll consider, how is it that we declare that kind of a moment? So future generations don't have to wonder where we stood on this issue. They will know. And they will know where this church stands now and for the future. Now there is an action step that, that we all can take personally. There are action steps corporately, and we'll talk about these as we move forward. But there's an action step that, that you can take personally on the subject of racial reconciliation. And that action step is to personally develop a Christ-centered friendship with someone from a different ethnic background than you. It's a simple step. It's Christ-centered, because the goal of our work in all of this is ultimately not reconciliation. That is the fruit of us saying Jesus is our only hope. He is our cleansing power. He is our first identity marker. That's the, that's the root that we're after. And when we center our hearts on that precious blood of Jesus that has washed away our sins, then we have a foundation for doing relationship work that no one else in this secular culture has. We, we can look at the story of the Good Samaritan to see what this looks like in practice. You'll remember this story. Jesus told it. Uh, two guys came by, religious leaders came by seeing a man beaten and abused on the side of the road. And they said, wow, I don't think I can get involved with that. 
It's too messy. They were afraid. Another guy came by and said, man, I feel sorry for him. That's, that's too bad. But I can't get my hands dirty. I can't actually engage in that. What will people think about me? Fear and pity centered those relationships. And so there was no reconciliation. But a third man came along, the Samaritan, and he saw that man beaten and abused. Sure, he felt the fear that maybe if he got involved, he might get attacked too. Sure, he felt the pity at seeing another human being bleeding and broken. But he didn't stop there. There was a compassion fueling him that moved him across the road and into that man's life. For us, that compassion that fuels us is a compassion knowing that all of us only have hope for healing at the cross of Jesus. And so, we are moved not to go halfway in our relationships with those from other ethnicities. It's not, it's not our responsibility to go halfway and our African-American brothers and sisters to go the other half. That's not how this works. No, the cross compels us to go all the way, to do whatever it takes to get into their lives and be a part of the healing work that God is doing in them. And you know what? That's their responsibility too. They have a responsibility to go all the way towards us as well. Because you know what? The bleeding and broken person, it's, it's us. We are the ones who are broken on this subject, all of us. I've heard it in some of your stories this week of watching injustice perpetuated against others and being powerless to do anything about it, of, of knowing the, the, that there's a problem and feeling broken and, and feeling like no one else cares about it. We all are the broken ones. And so we need the kind of Christ-centered friendships that enable the healing work of Jesus to be accomplished in each of us. And so, what can you do now? You can go pursue one of those kinds of Christ-centered friendships. You can go and listen to their side of the story and don't try to defend yourself if they say something that, you, that feels uncomfortable. Listen. You can go and hold up Jesus as that center because it's there that your sins and all of our sins find the cleansing power. Our goal is not to be colorblind, not to ignore our differences in our cultural heritage. Because when we look in Revelation chapter 7, every tribe and every tongue is coming to that great, great worship service. And in Revelation chapter 21, the kings of the nation bring their glory. 
That means they bring their cultural distinctiveness and, and offer it to Jesus as a worship, an act of worship. And so we all want to come full of who we are with all the best expressions that we know to give and offer them to Jesus as an act of worship. You can go and form that kind of friendship. And as a church, we're going to continue to learn how to move forward on this subject. But before we do, I think we just have to pause. We have to feel the weight of the grief of sin so that we will be driven to godly repentance. It's what the Apostle Paul said that the Corinthians did. Their grief drove them to repentance. And so today, we're going to end in a different kind of way for this service. We're going to have a time to pray, to express grief and ask for God's healing power here in our church and in our city. I'll invite you to come forward in just a moment and gather in groups of three or four. If you can't physically make it down, you can just gather in groups right where you're at. And I want you to pray. We're going to put some prompts on the screen, some ways that can help you to guide your prayer. And when you're done, when you feel like you've, you've resolved what God has called you to do this morning, right now, then you can, you can just head on out. We're not going to have any other formal conclusion because our work's not done. It's just beginning. And so now I'll just invite you to stand with me. And if this is an area where you'd say, I need to move, I need to take action, then I'll call you now to come forward, move the chairs out of the way, get a group together, and pray. Let's let this moment be a moment where like Josiah, we grieve those sins and we say, Father, change. Change this place. Change our hearts. And change our city through us. As Lisa prays, you come. Let's respond.